Well, hey, good morning. Grab a Bible and turn to the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in the 15th chapter. 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. If you don't have a Bible, try to find it on your smartphone. If you don't have a Bible or a smartphone, um, that's okay. We're going to be reading through it together. Um, If you don't have a Bible and you're here, there's a set of shelves over by um, uh, by the sound booth. If you want one of those, just grab it on your way out as our gift. If you want a nicer Bible than what's on the shelves, go to the Welcome Center, grab one out of the lost and found. They're nicer. <laughs> Leather, they got cases, you can do that too. But um, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, can I just kind of cut through the big drama and suspense this morning? Um, it's Easter. You're in a church. I'm a pastor. Guess what we're going to be talking about? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's going to be our topic this morning in 1 Corinthians. What happens is Paul is writing to a church, real church, real people, real problems, and he's making an argument. He's making a case, and he's not arguing for argument's sake. He's saying you have to understand some things as, as a follower of Jesus Christ. If you're going to choose to follow Jesus Christ, there's some basic things that you have to understand. I'm going to pick it up in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. He says this, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. So so he's writing to believers, and he says in verse 2, And by which you were being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. That that word vain, you're going to see it repeated several times in the verses that we're looking at this morning. Paul's got a worry. He's got a concern. He's concerned that some people have placed their hope, they've placed their faith in something that will eventually disappoint. Look what he says in verse 3. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So what he's saying here is he's saying, hey, this is the foundational thing. These are the things you got to know. This is the things we can't be wrong on. And he says this, he says that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Here's the gospel. It's not that complicated. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. He defeated death. But here's the thing that I don't want you to miss. It's not just that he died and it's not just that he rose again, but that it was for us. He died for our sins in our place, that we're connected to the events of the cross and the resurrection. Note, nowhere in the gospel as it's presented there simply does it tell you what you have to do about your sin. It says, Jesus died, he rose again for our sins. Jesus is the one that is resolving the conflict that's created by our sin. This is what separates the gospel from every other religion. Most religions, they're going to embrace something called moral deism. It's the idea that if you do the right things and live the right way, then God will be pleased with you and you can have peace with God. Islam, there's five pillars. You have to pray. You have to give offerings. You've got to make a pilgrimage to Mecca. There's things that you have to do in order to please God. It's interesting There was a reformation fought against the Catholic Church over this idea of whether you could earn your own salvation. And the reformers said that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And yet today in most churches, 
The focus is on how we live rather than who we live for. We're not here this morning to cheer each other on to living better lives. We're here this morning to give praise and to worship a God who died for our sins and reconciled us back to a holy God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. But what I want you to see in 1 Corinthians, it's not just that the gospel is unique. I want you to understand how Paul defends the gospel because the way that he defends it is also unique. And in defending the gospel, Paul is going to make an argument that's going to, it's going to place us at a crossroads. It's going to force us to make a decision. The big idea this morning is this, the resurrection must change the way we live Look at how Paul defended the gospel. The first thing that you see is in verse 3. We just read it, but you see this phrase, in accordance with the scriptures. Verse 4, in accordance with the scriptures. The defense that Paul is making is he's saying, everything that Jesus did and accomplished, it's in accordance with the scriptures. He was fulfilling prophecies that were made hundreds and thousands of years before he was born. Lee Strobel, in his book, The Case for Christ, he says dozens of Old Testament prophecies created a fingerprint that only the true Messiah could fit. It's interesting. Twelve years ago, I preached my first Easter sermon at this church. We were meeting back then at a conference center or a banquet center called the Trillium. And for my first Easter, I picked a passage, Leviticus 23, I got to tell you, as a pastor, it's really hard to botch Easter, but I did that morning. Like, who would choose Leviticus 23 for an Easter message? But the point that I was trying to make is in Leviticus 23, what happens is God gives the nation of Israel four feasts that they're to practice every year. Every spring, you're going to do these four feasts. It's going to be in remembrance of their exodus from slavery in Egypt. What's crazy is 1,500 years after the feasts were established by God through Moses, Jesus will come and he will fulfill Passover, become our Passover on Passover. He will raise from the dead on Sunday on first fruits. The feasts that were established in Leviticus 23 that the nation had practiced for 1,500 years were but a foreshadow of what Christ would accomplish. The Old Testament predicts when he will be born, where he will be born, of his childhood. Just in the Matthew 2, one chapter, it says that he will be born in Bethlehem, predicted by the prophets. That he will be called a Nazarene, out of Nazareth, that he will come out of Egypt. Some people have said, well, I think what happened is parents looked at the Old Testament prophecy and they were trying to get Jesus to match up or align, so they just followed the event so that it would happen. Listen, I have six kids. I couldn't even get them to soccer practices. There's no way that that was the case. And by the way, to what end? Isaiah 53 says that the Messiah would die an agonizing death. The psalmist says the same thing. It was according to the scriptures. If you compare this to other religions, think about Islam for a moment. Muhammad is a man living a nondescript life until he's about 40 years old and he wanders out into the wilderness and there he meets an angel in a cave and the cave explains Mormonism to him, the basic tenets of the faith, and he comes back and says, hey, this was my encounter. In essence, trust me. Joseph Smith was wandering in the woods one day and he found some golden tablets which an angel helped him 
translate, and after he was done translating them, the angel took them back. Trust me. I wonder if I was teaching in a mosque today or in a Mormon temple. I bet I'd have some doubts. Jesus came and fulfilled prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. The other world religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, any ism you can name, they basically represent approaches to life that if you follow their rules, if you live the way that they require you to live, you will live in harmony with some higher being, some God, the universe, karma. In essence, what they're saying is, here's what we think is true. Christianity is very, very different. It's saying, here's the historical facts of the, revel- or the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Deal with it. Make a choice. It's based off an historical argument. Look where he goes next, verse 5. A second argument, he points to witnesses. It says, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12 disciples, verse 6. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Listen to what he just said. He said he appeared to his followers, the disciples. He appeared to 500 others of his disciples. And then he appeared to James, his brother. Okay, how in the world do you convince a family member that you're the perfect God incarnate? I got brothers and sisters. They're not believing that. How many of you are sitting next to family? Turn and look at your family member and say, you're not perfect. (laughs) There's some kids that really enjoyed that. Dads, if if one of your kids just said that to you, turn to your kid and say, you're grounded, okay? Like, Like, go the other way with that. He's saying, listen, he appeared to hundreds of his followers after he rose from the dead. Explain that. And by the way, Paul's writing to the Corinthian church just a couple decades after Jesus rose from the dead. These people are still alive. That's what he just said. Some have argued, well, maybe his followers invented the religion because they didn't want to be disappointed in the way that Jesus' life came to an end. Well, can I just point out for what point? So that they could live the rest of their lives in hiding? So that none of them could get rich and famous? So that they would travel around being persecuted, imprisoned, beaten? And as they were being beaten, and tortured, and being put to death, none of them recanted. He appeared to his followers. It's interesting, look at verse 8. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul was a Pharisee. He was an enemy of the gospel, an enemy of Jesus. He says in verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. In Acts 26, Paul, who was persecuted Christians, that was his job, is miraculously converted. And later on, he finds himself in prison and he's standing on trial for his life. What is he on trial for? For preaching the gospel. And so as he goes before King Agrippa and he goes before Felix and Festus and he's on trial, what does he do? He argues the resurrection, the gospel, the very thing that got him in trouble. That's bold. And as he's arguing for the resurrection in Acts 26, they cry out, Paul, you're out of your mind. He goes, I'm not out of my mind. Because the events surrounding the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he says this, he says, for the king knows these things. 
And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. It hasn't been done in a corner. So Paul, on trial for his life, bets his life in talking to someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, saying, you can't deny something happened. Talk to the eyewitnesses. And then what happens in this passage is it takes a turn. Paul, Paul argues the opposite. He says, let's consider if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. What are the implications of that? And he says in verse 12, now if Christ is proclaimed, has raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. There's that word vain. In the Greek, it means empty. He's saying, listen, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, the whole thing's emptiness. If you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, why bother coming to church? If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, what argument can I make to convince you that he is king? It's empty. Then he goes on and says this. He says, if we are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he didn't raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile because you're still in your sins. And what Paul argues next is he says, listen, if Christ has not been raised, we're liars. But worse than that, your faith is futile. Here's what that word futile means. It means leaky. If Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, Christianity is a ship that is leaking. It's going down. The whole argument for the Christian faith is based off the historical fact that Jesus raised from the dead. He goes on and he says this. Then those who have fallen asleep, verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if, Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied. The word pitied there simply means this. Compassion for someone who is miserable. So what Paul is saying is he's saying, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, if the resurrection isn't true, and I got compassion on you because you're miserable people. Vain, empty, pitied, miserable, futile, leaky. If Jesus Christ has not been raised, here's my question. Where have you placed your hope? Where's the good news? Those three words, vain, futile. I lost the third one, pitied. <laughs> vain, futile, and pitied. Actually, that describes a lot of what I see on the news and in our world. Wouldn't you agree? People looking for answers, struggling to find meaning, struggling to find hope. Because most have rejected the reality that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Look at what Paul says next. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. 
And what Paul is saying here is he's bringing you to a crossroads. You either believe it or you don't. But if Christ is risen from the dead, well, you need to make a decision about what you're going to do with the resurrection. It'll be the most important decision that you make in your entire life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, it demands a choice of everyone in this room. Turn to your neighbor and say, you've got to make a choice. Turn to the person on the other side and say, you've got to make a choice. You have to come to some conclusion. You have to decide. Is what the Bible claims about the resurrection of Jesus Christ too? Did he really die? Did he really raise from the dead? And was it really for us? Two options. First thing you can do is reject. Room's full today. Did you guys notice that? How was parking? Was that fun? We have visitors with us today. There are people that will be here this Easter, and maybe if we're fortunate enough, we'll get to see them next Easter, maybe at Christmas. You guys are so welcome. We're so glad that you're here. But there's some in a room this large that say, listen, as it relates to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I just reject it. I reject it. That's a choice that you can make. That's a decision as you come to this crossroads that you can choose you might say that I don't believe in a God, or if I believe in a God, I don't believe that he's connected to us, and I don't necessarily believe in a resurrection. And here's what Paul is saying. I agree with you. If you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it would be stupid to live as if you did. And what he's suggesting is if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, don't, don't live like Jesus rose from the dead. So, so, so how should you live? Well, if you don't believe in the resurrection, live for the moment. Do whatever you can do in the moment to make you happy. Make your choices based off the immediate. Ingest whatever will take the edge off. Because if there's no resurrection, all we have is to live for the moment. Don't think too deeply. Don't ask the big questions in life. Why are we here? What is the meaning of life? Why does any of this matter? Because if there's no resurrection from the dead, if there's no life after death, if there's no God, then there's no meaning in life. There's no absolute right and wrong. And basically you end up that life is meaningless. Don't ask deep questions. Don't look around. Don't study history. Don't look at people who have embraced the same ideas that Jesus didn't raise from the dead and what they did is they went in the pursuit of pleasure. Don't look at the lives throughout history of people who had the money, the looks, the fame, and the fortune to pursue pleasure wherever it led them because you'll find a group of miserable people. Solomon, before Jesus' time, life is vanity. Tried everything. It's empty. It's meaningless. Look around the landscape today. The billionaires, the successful businessmen. Who do you aspire to be? Jeff Bezos? Bill Gates? Happy families? Happy lives? Hollywood? Sports? Tiger Woods? Michael Jordan? Those guys seem like they're happy. Like, don't look around. Don't ask the deep questions. Live for the moment. Don't study history and stay busy. Keep distracted. Don't focus. 
And don't study the facts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ because the facts regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ have satisfied some of the greatest minds in human history. Because here's the truth. Prophecy proves it. The witnesses prove it. And here's something else that proves it. Transformed lives. So you can choose to reject. Just don't look around too much and don't ask too many questions. But here's another choice that you can make. You can choose to accept and follow based off the evidence. And that choice can transform a life. Take a look. I had the huge house. I had the expensive cars in the garage. We had like you know, 15 dental offices, about 35 to 45 doctors that I was responsible for motivating, inspiring, and transforming lives. And I started, like, getting into self-help. You know, it's all within you. You just got to be more motivated. You got to work harder. And all these, like, philosophers that we're talking about, it's all within you. Turn to yourself. And then got into just crazy stuff. Like, I started becoming, like, certified coach on all that stuff was speaking across the nation. I was um, hired by a $10 billion company to go out there and, you know, talk about business. And I was able to get to the point where I didn't have to go and I didn't have to see patients. We uh, rented a place in the Keys. I drove down in my fancy car and I listened to motivational videos. She had to drive down with all the kids in her minivan. And then we get down there and I couldn't figure out why she's so miserable. Like, I just brought her to paradise. Here I'm living out this self-fulfilled, you know, success picture, and I think I'm giving her every she, everything she wants, and at that time, completely ignoring my family. We were on date night one time, and uh, 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 my wife looked at me and she was like, um, I, I don't enjoy being with you anymore. I was kind of floored because I thought I was providing everything. You know, I thought I was the king. We lived a comfortable lifestyle, but what I really wanted was a leader for our family. And he was more interested in leading the workspace. I would take my kids to church and then he would like, I was like, are, are you gonna go with us? No, I don't feel like it today. So it was just a real apathetic, viewpoint of his spirituality. I thought it was the end, basically. At the point I was in my life, I was like, I would rather be alone raising my kids than have this influence. I didn't really know what else to do, but I'd seen the Gravelins Got at Work video. And um, I didn't know them, but I was just like, I want that. Like, I, we, like, that's our last, res that is our only hope and resort is if we can put God in the middle of our family, maybe it would change him. But I knew that I couldn't because I had tried everything. So I reached out to Don and then I kind of had to trick him to go <laughs> to dinner um, with the four of us. So we sat at the country club with Don and Marty and he was just um, uh, talking about how you know, he was growing so much there. So I'm like, I want that growth. That sounds awesome. And then we started Soul Care from there. 
as my marriage was collapsing, um, so now my, my business is starting to collapse too. Um, and it grew too fast. And I, I grew way too fast. Like we were buying a dental office every like three months and all of a sudden, you know, the cash flow is, is diving down. And at the same time, you know, I was really big into CrossFit. I was working out constantly. I was the strongest I had ever been in my life. Um, and now all of a sudden I'm starting to have back problems. So now in between patients, I would go lay down like face first and then I would come and I, it, for like five minutes and then I would, I would rotate over and lay on my back. Um, so I was losing my, I lost my health. I was losing my business. I was three months away from bankruptcy. Um, um, we had to sell the house um, and figure something else out. Um, I was losing all my friendships, but at the same time, uh, I was, I was start, starting to follow the Lord. Um, and I remember I was in a, a service. In Dave's sermon, he said, the Lord will discipline you and you never know. He may put you face down in submission. And at that time, I was rotating five minutes face down, five minutes face up, five minutes face down. And man, I remember it was like a rush hit me. I'm like, that's exactly what the Lord is doing. He is disciplining me right now and he loves me and he wants me to just turn turn to him completely. And I got baptized. I got baptized that day. I was not expecting to get baptized, but I did. I got baptized. And I remember after baptism, like, it was like a refreshing feeling. I can't explain it. But like, I had felt like a weight had lifted off of me. The next day, my health was completely restored. My back was fine. I was fine. Call that whatever you want. You I think it's a miracle. Discs, yeah. I had three bulging discs with an MRI to prove it. Slowly, things started like being restored. Um, my marriage was getting a lot better. We found some. We found a common ground, which was Jesus. And we were reading the Bible together, and we were quoting quoting Scripture together. We were doing, um, you know, we were doing our counseling. We were we were doing that together because I was humbled so much. My friendship started coming back. When I noticed my heart needed to change is when I was putting all my hope in Him being my leader instead of Jesus taking the central role in relationship. And when I focused on my avenue and my personal relationship with God, my grace towards Him became more evident and I was more willing to forgive Elias. And also, I didn't have as hard of a heart toward Him. I saw Him engaged in soul care and then He wanted to go and learn. And then it didn't just stay in the counseling room. He brought it home and was actively incorporating it within our family life and in our marriage. And then that's when I was like, okay, God really does have his heart. And I could see the tiny little changes building up over a long, longer period of time. And then my trust was restored. The hope is in the Lord, not in yourself. Don't try to get more motivated in yourself because you'll fail. A lot of men, they get into thinking about their kingdom and they forget that you have no control. And when I released all control to the Lord, that's when my life was transformed.
Don't miss what Elias said at the end of um, that testimony. He said a lot of men spend a lot of time building their own kingdoms. And uh, all weekend we've been talking on Good Friday and earlier in this service about what kingdom are you in? The resurrection of Jesus Christ makes you make a choice. Are you going to serve yourself and see where that leads? Or are you going to trust a risen Savior? Watching that video, I was thinking back. There's hundreds of people in this room who the particulars are different, but the story is the same. There was something in their life that brought them to the point where they said, I'm not happy. I'm not satisfied. In the video, Elias' wife, Ann Claire, she's like, I don't want to be with you anymore. I've been in positions where it's like, I don't want to be with me anymore. And I can remember 12, 13 years ago, finally, the kids were about ready to graduate. We had three seniors left in the house. Crazy. Same year. And they were going to leave, and we were going to be empty nesters in our young 40s, and we had enough money to retire, get a place in Florida, man, get away from this place in the winter. Sounded good. And we felt that call to go into ministry. And the problem with going into ministry is that was going to create different passions and different priorities and different obligations. And I remember wrestling with that. It's been a special weekend for me. Last night at the five o'clock service, I was in the tank. We were doing baptisms. My son Calvin was in there, and uh, we baptized his two oldest daughters, my granddaughters. I watch a video of Elias and AC, and, and they mentioned in their video that the, the, the thing that brought them to soul care and counseling to get serious was the testimony of the Gravelins. Well, the testimony of the Gravelins, they came and were discipled by the cooks, and the cooks came in crisis and were discipled by Kristen and I. That's fourth generation discipleship taking place. The decision to follow Christ is worth it because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is real. And he continues to prove it by transforming lives over and over and over again. But you can choose to reject. That's your choice. But if you're going to choose to accept, then you need to accept and follow. There's a third choice. It's just stupid. To accept the facts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and then not allow him to be king. Romans 10.9 says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The gospel is not complicated. It's simple. Jesus died, he rose, and he did it for us in our place. But don't miss in Romans 10.9 that you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. He becomes king. He becomes a priority. He becomes the thing that you're living for. If Jesus... If Jesus is risen, that means that he's conquered death. That means that he is king of kings and lord of lords. And he makes some demands. He doesn't make suggestions because of who he is. And the first would be, would you repent of your sins? Would you trust in me as your savior? Would you believe that there's a God who loves 
loves you enough that he would send his son. And then second, he says, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Give an outward profession of an inward confession. Tell people that you've decided to follow Jesus. Repent and be baptized. It's an act of obedience. It's not complicated. Jesus says, if you've confessed your sin, the first thing that I ask the follower of Jesus Christ to do is be baptized. In the Great Commission, when Christ is about to go back to heaven in Matthew 28, it says, listen, go make disciples and baptize them. Throughout the New Testament, there's no existence of a follower of Jesus Christ who has refused to be baptized. So if your choice is to reject or to accept and follow, the question that I would ask, have you done the second thing he asks you to do, which is be baptized after repenting and confessing your sins. And if not, why? It's interesting. Every time we do a baptism service, I got to knock down walls. I got to unarm arguments. Some of you are here and saying, I've already been baptized. I was baptized as an infant. And please understand my heart in this. If you were baptized uh, in your church when, when you were younger as an infant, it's a great thing. It meant that your parents wanted to see you come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Here we do things a little different. We do uh, child dedications. But I understand the intentions of your, heart, of your parents' heart. It's a great thing. But this is different. This is a step of identity. It's a choice that you make. It's a decision that you come to after you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. When Jesus began his ministry, the first thing that we see is he goes out to John the Baptist and he gets baptized. Why in the world did Jesus get baptized? He was without sin. Well, it was an identity move. He was identifying with us. And likewise, Jesus now demands that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to take that step of identity to identify with him. Last night, 25 people got baptized in the 5 p.m. service. Many of them had no intention when they came to that service to get baptized. And racing through their heads at this moment was, I didn't bring anything. Hey, guess what? We thought of everything. We've got clothes. We've got them in every size. We've got shorts. We've got t-shirts. We've got enough makeup to make you look as good when you leave this place as you did when you got here, okay? We've thought of everything. Don't let that be a hindrance in doing what God's called you to do. Others would say, man, I wish someone was here so that I could be baptized with them or family here to witness it. The whole thing's videotaped. You've got the witness and the testimony. Please don't let that stop you from doing what the Holy Spirit is laying on your heart to do. Man, I love Easter. I wouldn't want to defend any other religion or any other philosophical approach to life. I love the fact that I can stand before you with full confidence and say, my faith is placed in the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he is King of kings and Lord of lords. If you agree, would you be willing to do what he's called you to do? Would you be willing to be baptized? 
We're going to play a song. My wife is standing over here. Kristen is here. If you want to be baptized, just come up. There's people waiting. If you've got questions or, or need some more explanation, we've got an army of church leaders waiting downstairs to ask, answer any question that you might have and make sure that you understand exactly what and why you're doing it. The only variable that we can't account for is whether or not you'll come. Did you hear Elias say he went into the tank and all of a sudden his back was healed? Can't promise that. Not, I don't think he was lying. I believe in miracles. I believe it was true. But if you think that was the greatest thing about his baptism story, you're completely missing it. God transformed everything in his life. And I'm just not meeting people who are saying, boy, I made a choice to follow Jesus Christ and I followed him for long seasons and I regret it. It's the greatest choice you'll ever make. Will you come? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for, uh, for Paul. A man who hated you, who persecuted Christians. And then you turned his life upside down because you saved him. Father, I thank you that you would love us enough to send your son. Father, let us never take that for granted. We thank you for his death on our behalf, for defeating death, and for giving us hope. Father, we thank you that through Jesus Christ, the vanity of life is gone, the futility of life is gone, and that we have a hope. It's in your name we pray. Amen.